You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. And the problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. The health system perpetuates gender inequalities and restrictive gender norms. This stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Hello, this is Steve Morrison. I'm Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health Policy Center at CSIS. At the end of November, we released the commission report, Ending the Cycle of Crisis and Complacency in U.S. Global Health Security. It's the report of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. It includes seven core recommendations. In this mini-series episode, we're joined by Ambassador Jimmy Coker, who is a member of the commission, as well as Carolyn Reynolds, who is an expert affiliate with CSIS, who played a major role in helping us develop the uh, one recommendation that we will be focusing on today, which is the recommendation to establish a pandemic preparedness challenge at the World Bank that would incentivize countries to invest in their own preparedness. So that is our focus today. Carolyn and Jimmy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. One of the core problems that we identified in the commission report is the difficulty, the critical gap in countries investing their own finances to protect themselves from outbreaks. And by that, I mean low-income countries, lower-middle-income countries. Carolyn, why is it that we see this acute gap? What are the root factors that account for this? Well, thanks, Steve. I I think there are a number of them. I mean, at the top of my list is really political will and leadership. When we talk about pandemics, we're talking about crises that are invisible until they are crises. And so there's not necessarily a political reward in investing in preparedness for something that people don't know if it will happen. So it doesn't become an urgent issue until there's a crisis. And so number one is the need to really build political will and leadership to see that this is a issue of security, an issue for economic security of a country and for the health issue. The second is poverty. We're talking about countries, low and middle income countries, and especially low and lower middle income countries, many of which are conflict affected, very fragile in nature. If we think about the Democratic Republic of Congo right now, which has been battling an Ebola outbreak for going on 18 months now. These are countries that have very limited resources, that are have endemic poverty, that have a lot of competing demands for limited development resources. There's also a moral hazard issue. So what do I mean by that? When countries know that if there is a crisis 
And if it really gets really bad, if a disease outbreak spreads and lots of people start dying, as we saw, unfortunately, in 2014 in Ebola in West Africa, and it hits the media, um, the world's going to respond eventually because there are spillover effects because then it becomes an issue for regional or global security. So this is essentially a global public good we're talking about. And so for countries to bear the brunt of that preparedness on their own dime is a tough challenge. And finally, I'd say it's there's these are really complex issues. Again, if we look at DRC, this is not just a health crisis. It's grounded in poverty. It's grounded in security issues. This is an area that's been in conflict for a long time. So there's many different issues that are coming at play, which require it. It's not just a, a health challenge. It's a multi-sectoral challenge. Yeah. I guess what I'm struck by is the global health security agenda is launched in 2014. Countries, a broad range of countries, step forward. They join in the assessment process analyzing their gaps. They put costed and budgeted national plans together. At the same time, in the last several years, we've had many studies that document the huge costs of not being prepared, as well as the affordability of creating basic preparedness, that it's not that out of reach. And yet when we look across low-income and lower-middle-income countries, it's not just the poorest that aren't putting dollars in. We have Lots of countries that have gone through the assessment and lots of countries that have put their plans together, and they're still not putting their dollars forward into that. Jimmy, why is that? Well, there's always a trade-off between things that are urgent and things that are just important. Yeah. And this, I think everyone agrees, is important. And there's no country that's invested zero in this. Every country has some level of capacity and has taken some steps to fulfill the obligatory international health regulations, which were passed after SARS in 2005. They're mandatory for member states to implement and report on. Not even all member states are reporting on what they've done to fulfill them. And only about a third of countries still in 2019 have actually reached an acceptable level of preparedness and response yeah. in case of an outbreak. And so this is a unique opportunity in that we have both a treaty, an international agreement, which everyone has signed up for, the international health regulations. We have, as you mentioned, the global health security agenda, which was led by the U.S., but now has more than 70 member states, is quite a diverse group of countries that's been led by South Korea and Indonesia and Uganda, mm -hmm. Netherlands, Finland. Mm -hmm. These are countries that really have seen this as an area in which they want to take international leadership. And it's also has the report's recommendations have the benefit of being both an emergency response and a health system strengthening tool that can lead to universal health coverage. We can't really talk about universal health coverage if the vulnerability to outbreaks and, and epidemics remain such a big gap. So there are all sorts of institutional and sort of structural reasons that this is an opportunity we have to seize. So but you as, would, as you Carol would say said, we haven't, many countries haven't done it. So there is, in your view, you think there's some ripeness here? I mean, we don't have a clear financial framework or way forward for getting countries yet to invest their own resources. The billion dollars that finance the U.S. bilateral investment in capacity building in 17 countries has run its course, and we have questions around whether the U.S. is staying in the game. But do you believe that countries are approaching a point where their leadership at the statesman, stateswoman level, at the level of the Ministry of Finance, that they are approaching this problem 
with well, a ma- new approach. Many are, and there's some good examples. I think Uganda, where I was ambassador, yes. during the time I was there, Uganda had been the most damaging Ebola outbreak in the world had been in Uganda in the year 2000. And they set up, with CDC's help, an Ebola lab in the Uganda Virus Research Institute, which is now entirely run by Ugandans, is a world-class lab. And as we've had even the Ebola from DR Congo and the Marburg outbreak this year in Uganda, they've done exactly what one would hope a partner country would do. They've found the pathogen, they've identified its origin, they've talked about the contact tracing, and they've minimized the damage from those which in other countries haven't succeeded in doing that. And you have Vietnam, which has done a fully costed plan from national level to district level to community level on what steps would need to be taken, who's accountable, what the cost would be, and then tried to gradually fund that plan. And Thailand is a new report from the NTI and Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School called the Global Health Security Index, in which countries based on very well-established international indicators are ranked as to how well they've prepared for their own global health security. And number seven on the list is Thailand, ahead of many, many developed countries. And Thailand has systematically invested in health system strengthening, looked at threats, and the locally developed responses. So there's some good examples, and these all three of those countries have been helped directly by the U.S. contribution to the global health security agenda. At the same time, those are still exceptions, and right. we need to be able to replicate those examples and scale them up in lots of other places. Carolyn, before we get to the recommendation itself, do you think that there's ripeness at this moment? Absolutely. In fact, I think that if we don't act now, we might see some regression, for better or for worse. Unfortunately, the tragedy of Ebola in West Africa really did initiate a lot of navel-gazing, a lot of discussions, a lot of reports and assessment of what went wrong. And even prior to when that crisis emerged, the U.S. took the leadership to set up the global health security agenda, as, as Jimmy was talking about. But it was really on the back of the Ebola crisis that that really got uptake. And there's now more than 70 countries that have joined that coalition, and it is a coalition of the willing. And as a result of that, and with support from WHO and others, more than 100 countries have undertaken joint external evaluations, which is essentially bringing in external experts to look under the hood and say, are you compliant with your international health regulations? No, here are where your gaps are. So they've brought in experts to look at that. They've developed, more than 60 have developed national action plans. So they're voting with their feet to say this is important, and now the time is ripe for us to actually make sure they can take that to the next step and implement those plans. There's one more reason why I think this is a key time and that, as you say, this is ripe for action, and that's innovation. This Global Health Technology Coalition every year tries to recognize innovations, and there are vaccine development, diagnostic development, treatment options really are at a stage now that they weren't even five years ago with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And across the spectrum of infectious diseases and even non-communicable diseases, there are innovations that are in development and that have reached the stage where they can actually be implemented that we didn't have before. And not to seize those solutions, which we know work in the developed world, and not to apply them to low- and middle-income countries, I think it's an ethical lapse. That's not right. We know what to do. We have some solutions. And not to be able to bring them to bear when people are dying or people are under threat is just unethical. Now, the commission, earlier this year, we had some internal discussions, some roundtables. We produced a paper in April 
you both contributed to that paper, we recognized that the absence of financing and ownership by the countries themselves in preparedness was a very conspicuous and glaring problem that we had to identify as one of the key vulnerabilities in health security and begin to address. And we were struggling to figure out what might a multilateral option that involved the World Bank look like. We put some ideas forward in the April paper. We drew on other commissioners. Tom Frieden was very active, as well as Amanda McClellan from his staff at Resolve to Save Lives. We worked very closely with World Bank officials. Carolyn, you come from that world. Mukesh Chalwa, Tim Evans were very forthcoming and very active. We brought in some officials from the U.S. Treasury to contribute to our thinking on this and a number of other experts. As we put the plan together for these seven key recommendations, we turned to you, Carolyn, to help us craft what we thought was a affordable, timely, powerful, and defensible option that would help us break this problem or begin to break it and incentivize countries to come forward and put more of their own resources. It's tied to the World Bank, to the IDA. The replenishment cycle is underway. So tell us, what is this, Carolyn? Describe for us what the proposal is, its basic rationale, how it would function. Sure. So we've called it the Pandemic Preparedness Challenge, and that's very deliberate, that word challenge. It's a five-year fund, uh, $750 million, and specifically targeted to the 32 countries that are classified as the most fragile and conflict-affected states and that are eligible for financing from the World Bank from, as you say, the IDA or the International Development Association, which is the World Bank's uh, fund for the poorest countries, which uh, will be wrapping up its replenishment and will be for the next three years starting in July of 2020. The reason for a five-year fund is tied to the global health security agenda, which has set all the countries who are members of the GHSA have set a goal of over the next five years to really increase their um, health security preparedness and have set a number of targets to do that in line with the international health regulations. As we talked about earlier, many of these countries um, and these 32 countries have actually said this is important. They've undergone the diagnostic to see what gaps they have, and they've taken the step to develop national action plans. But these are some of the poorest countries in the world, and they have, as I said earlier, a lot of competing demands. And so they may be financing pieces of this, but they are not in the position at this time to fully finance their action plans to bring them up to speed to the level that will be considered sort of that that baseline for preparedness. Okay. So what we're proposing is for the U.S. to really play leadership in setting mm-hmm. up this fund. It would be essentially a fund sitting at the World Bank that would have multiple donors. The U.S. would take leadership. We're proposing a uh, 20% share of that, which would be matched four to one by other donors from around the world. And we think that countries like Japan and Germany and other champions of Mm -hmm. global health security, Australia, others are very likely to support this idea. It's a very modest investment. It would require countries to put some skin in the game. The modest investment would be $30 million a Mm -hmm. year from the U.S. over five years, which which is very small if you think about that in relation to other types of global funds that that the United States have supported, but a big leveraging factor for that. And by housing it at the World Bank, it would be effectively linked to the larger pot of money that's available through the World Bank's IDA, which is not earmarked. And so while countries can tap into that to finance preparedness, we don't see them actually doing that. Why? Because 
they have to choose between investing in roads or investing in education systems or any a number of development challenges, power grids, et cetera, all of which are also important to baseline preparedness, but they're not actually building things like disease surveillance systems, training epidemiologists, making sure there's effective laboratories, communication systems, these core capacities which are necessary to prevent, detect, and so respond to So this is crises. meant to be a nudge. This is meant to be Absolutely. an incentive to say, we'll sweeten the pot in the next five years for you. You put, you, the country, partner country, put your share forward and we'll subsidize the early phases fairly heavily. And we've seen this work in other cases. So there's something was set up a few years ago called the Global Financing Facility yeah. for Women, Children, and Adolescent, which many listeners will know about. That's now in its fourth, going on its fifth year. And we're seeing that work for the same kind of thing to sort of add some additional funding for countries to sweeten the pot, if you will, so that they have their uh, existing allocation. They don't have to borrow from that. This is right. something that will actually top that up. But it also will be more flexible funding, but it will be specifically targeted to investments in preparedness. There are metrics behind this. The idea is that, first of all, there's the requirement that countries have a plan. There's the requirement that countries put skin in the game. So the funding would not fully fund plans, but it would be a declining share over time. And you could measure over time. And you what can measure getting. over time progress linked to, for example, the scores on the joint external evaluation or perhaps on the Global Health Security Index. So there are metrics out there that will show progress on those investments and return on that investment. Yeah. Jimmy, two things. One, what's likely to be attractive about this to, let's say, a congressional leadership of both parties looking at a proposal to make a new kind of investment in health security. What would be attractive about this kind of multilateral initiative, given where we are right now in this moment in time? Well, burden sharing is on everyone's mind. And the ability to leverage other donors and to leverage domestic spending by the affected or beneficiary countries is difficult because there are no real mechanisms. We don't have global government and, or other things. But this is an incentive fund in which U.S. contribution would leverage $1 would leverage $4 from other donors. And our annual budget would depend on raising that other money. So there's a great incentive to say that this really is U.S. leadership, but not U.S. going it alone or that right. this is not a bilateral program. And it's time-bound. And it's time-bound. And I, I guess I'd add the 2015 Sustainable Development Goals are important to every country. And they may be less sometimes to the U.S. than they should be. But there's a goal 3D that says to strengthen the capacity of all countries, in particular developing countries, for early warning, risk reduction, and management of global health risks. Now, that's we can all agree that that's a very important aim. But unlike many other of the sustainable development goals, there are no indicators, there's no numeric or time-bound goal to this SDG, a 3D paragraph. And this program would be a way of establishing some numerical goals for that, some ways of measuring progress through the JEEs, through the Global Health Security Carolyn, you had, you had yeah, a Yeah, and I would add, I think you've made the burden-sharing case, you've made the metrics case, but I would add really strongly the country ownership case. The USAID's uh, mantra now is journey to self-reliance. This is about encouraging self-reliance. This is about actually putting dollars to work to not only have countries build these core capacities, but to assume ownership and leadership for their own preparedness, which benefits them but benefits all yeah. of us. And it's about a trajectory towards sustainable financing where at some point 
the aid will no longer be needed. So the proposal, it's a call to action for U.S. leadership. You're saying let's, on a multilateral basis, make the investment diplomatically in carrying this forward. Jimmy, you're a career ambassador, career foreign service officer. What would the diplomatic requisites be in your mind if you were asked, okay, tell us how to make this work in this next phase on diplomatic grounds, what would that require? Well, the U.S. is the necessary leader, but our leadership is not sufficient. And I think working through institutions where we do have a prominent role, we're going to host, for instance, the G7, the Group of Seven Industrialized Countries uh, in 2020. And putting this on the agenda as it has been in the past with the G7 and the G20 to follow up on the commitments that were made four or five years ago, but also to look at the situation as it is in 2020 and say, what are the gaps that most demand our attention? And be sure that the major rich countries of the world are addressing those in their own countries, but also in the partner countries where they've and pledged And which countries to, to do, we, do we think are likely to be responsive to our great idea about creating a trust fund and asking other governments to carry 80% of the freight. What what do you think? Which are the governments that we're going to look to? Carolyn mentioned Germany and Japan, which have been in the forefront of this. I think the UK, France uh, have also been very active in this front. The European Union is represented at the G7, and they're going to develop a new engagement strategy. And let's hope that we can put this on their agenda. Uh, Australia has been a big partner on the global Australia, health security South agenda. Korea, and I also think we can, North yeah. Korea, at South Korea, I think we can also can interest other emerging markets on this. Also, this is not what meant to be purely an intergovernmental initiative. I think private sector, look, there's a strong private sector coalition around the global health security agenda, also through the World Economic Forum. They recognize that this is a business risk for them. And so I think we can find supporters there. And I think this is a big play for philanthropy as well. Frankly, there should be more philanthropy in this space. And one health is important. Many of these threats are zoonotic, transmitted from animals to humans. And the private sector in agriculture in every country is extremely important. And getting those farmers, livestock owners, forestry services engaged in looking at this from a public health perspective and working with other sectors within their own countries is something that both this fund, the challenge fund can help. And I think the G7 and other multilateral leadership can can help bring about. Do you think that the World Bank leadership would be responsive to this? I do. I mean, we've had a change in leadership, but the current president, President Mulpass, who spoke at the UN General Assembly and talked about the importance of um, actually universal health coverage and health security as being important investments. I think that the bank has been strongly on record over the last few years. It played, it played a leading role in the West Africa Ebola uh, outbreak. It's playing a leading financing role right now in the Ebola outbreak in DRC. Uh, they just actually, uh, I understand, uh, released funds as well for the measles outbreak in Samoa. So the bank is, recognizes that this is a threat, again, not just a health threat, um, but it's a threat to uh, development. Uh, if you have a major outbreak, look at what happened in West Africa. Again, uh, to use that example, these were countries, in, in the case of Liberia, countries that were among the fastest growing economies in the world before that So you're securing hit. your investment. And so you're securing your investments in development and ensuring that those gains are not lost. And Jimmy, given what you know about the interagency process, how hard is it going to be to interest the White House and Treasury in picking something up like this as a priority? And how hard would it be? You know, I think there's several stages to that. CDC, which plays a crucial role in our engagement, both domestically and Mm -hmm. internationally, has been reluctant in many ways to ask for the money that it itself knows it needs to do this. So it's not just 
convincing Treasury to or the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, to put this in the budget, but for the various components of the U.S. government that have a response to go through the report is calculated as 16 different congressional authorizing and appropriating committees, ask for those budgets, put it in the president's budget, and make the case. I mean, the, Carolyn started by talking about political will as though it's a light switch. Some people think of it as a light switch that you can turn on and off. But Political will is built up through the use of data and evidence, through That's making right. compelling arguments and showing the cost of inaction. Yeah. And I think that this report is a great example of how we do have the evidence, but we need everyone at every stage of the process to be asking for the money, to be justifying why it's part of a bigger picture, and to put those pieces together in our budget presentations. And up to now, we haven't done that. I think it's important also to say that leadership Within the U.S. government, leadership having direct face-to-face -face -face contact with these realities is very important. And what I mean by that is in the recent weeks and months, we've seen Secretary Azar visit Eastern Congo. We've seen Mark Green, Administrator USAID. We've seen Dr. Redfield, the head of CDC. I think he's been there three times. Tim Ziemer from USAID. That matters enormously, it seems to me in appreciating the, the consequences of not having preparedness. And they do have an ability to communicate with the White House and with others on these matters. And getting it out of a narrow, siloed approach and into something where the bigger message is, we need to be thinking longer term. This is a very affordable option, it seems to me. I mean, it's the way you've crafted it, Carolyn, in, in designing this is, I think, very compelling and uh, on multiple levels. And just in closing, what do you think the single biggest, most powerful message is to our listenership and the other audiences that we're going to be reaching in the coming weeks and months in trying to market this specific recommendation? What is the central message that you deliver? Carolyn? I would say that if we don't make these, this is a very modest investment in building other countries' preparedness. And if we don't make those investments at the source of where is likely to be the next deadly outbreak, we will pay for it both in lives and in treasure here at home. And this is the maximum of a pay now or pay later. Jimmy? And it definitely is a multi-sectoral process. I, I may have missed the thrust of your earlier question. Treasury does need to step up. It's a key partner. It's our interface with the World Bank and the multilateral development banks. And that for them to look at this not as a health sector program, but as something that's really part of our development cooperation and our financial cooperation with low and middle income countries, I think is key to its success. And we're going to need not just the budget line item, but the sense that how this fits in to what we're trying to accomplish in our relationship with those banks and with those countries who are beneficiaries. If I can just add, I mean, the experts are united on this point. Talk to any, you know, defense or national security expert on this. We will have another major outbreak. And the worst case scenario is that it's a fast moving airborne flu pandemic. The global health security index, all the evidence that's on the table shows us that the world is not prepared. These countries that are targeted by this fund are the least prepared, but those where the outbreaks are most likely to spread out of control. Well, thank you both for your leadership and your contributions to the commission and specifically to this very important recommendation. And I'm very proud of the overall package of what we've put together over the last year and a half. 
and I'm particularly excited by the fact that we've come up with this multilateral option. And thank you both for helping us get to this point. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. 